0: You all of a sudden kind of have somebody at this one point who's trying to break things down for you and categorize them and label them and say, do this, do this, do this, do this, and you'll get this outcome. And we haven't had that before. In the earlier systems, you're seeing teachings that are being given to a specific student that has a specific need. But from us looking back at it through our historical lens, it looks confusing, And then Patanjali comes along and he kind of says, okay, I'm going to make this system that's kind of for everybody. Everybody, you follow this and this is what you get. You get yoga. And that's new. That's innovative. That's a progressive thinking way of approaching a system that has been highly, highly esoteric up until that point. Oh. Oh.
1: Hello and welcome to the Don't Forget Yoga Podcast, helping new yoga teachers absorb yogic wisdom with music, oh, mantras, and mnemonics. I'm your host, Derek Pashupa Goodwin, a 600-hour yoga certified podcast. yoga teacher, Kirtanwala, and a human who struggles with memory. This episode is part two of an interview I conducted with Austin Sanderson. The first part of the interview is featured in episode three, Don't Forget the Vedas. So check that out when you get a chance. It's in that episode that we learn that the original Vedas were passed down orally, and therefore, memorization and mnemonics were essential in the tradition. The Vedas were instructions for rituals, ceremonies, sacrifices, mantras, and benedictions. And the end of the Vedic age is when we get the Upanishads, which are called Vedanta, the end of the Vedas. It's here that we begin to see the evolution of teachings that will one day become Pakti Yoga, Karma Yoga, Jnana Yoga, and the Raja Yoga of the Yoga Sutras. My interview with Austin is long, and we touched on lots of different things. And that made it hard for me to fit into the format of this podcast. What I'm learning as I go is I need to make my interviews more concise (laughs) so that I can put out episodes more consistently. But since I promised a second part to the interview, I decided to narrow this episode down to the part of our discussion where we talked about Patanjali and the Yoga Sutras. I only recently learned the history of the Yoga Sutras from the book, The Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, a biography by David Gordon White. It's been very liberating in many ways to know that the Yoga Sutras are not as central to Hinduism as one might believe after taking a yoga teacher training in the West. On the other hand, the story of how they got to be so central to our teacher trainings is fascinating. I hope this episode will give you a little taste of that story, and perhaps you'll continue to follow the thread and unravel your own misconceptions. The exact timeline that the Yoga Sutras were created is impossible to pin down, but they were probably composed a couple of centuries on either side of the beginning of the Common Era. As you probably know, sutra translates to thread. In the era of the Yoga Sutras, the oral tradition of memorization was considered superior to written traditions, and in fact writing was seen as a degeneration of wisdom from the Kali Yuga. Therefore, there was many sutras being compiled by various traditions, because the nature of a sutra is to be minimalistic, and therefore easier to memorize. Om, don't forget it. Om, the yoga sutras. Because sutras are intentionally condensed into the essence of the teachings, they are accompanied by commentaries that decode them. In the case of the yoga sutras, The OG commentator is named Vyasa, and most subsequent commentaries use his as the baseline. The commentaries are written down and devote several sentences or paragraphs to unpacking each of the aphorisms in the original sutra. Without these commentaries, the sutras would be impossible to understand. Other sutras composed around the time of Patanjali include the Brahma Sutras, which are also known as Vedanta Sutra, Samkhya Sutra, Vaishishka Sutra, Shiva Sutras, and of course everyone's favorite, the Kama Sutra. There's more, but you get the idea. Now the reason that the various schools of thought were composing sutras is because the Upanishads included many revelations from the Rishis. And in many of the cases, the revelations contradicted one another. So these schools that were forming of philosophy and Religion and understanding compiled sutras to create structures and practices around their own unique takes on what the Upanishads were revealing. If you study the history of yoga, you'll find that it is closely related to a philosophical system called Samkhya that emerged in the same post Vedic age. And while yoga was mentioned a bit in the early Vedas, it was never really defined. Yoga and samkhya are discussed at some length in the Katha Upanishad, a work of revelation that likely dates from sometime between 300 and 100 before the Common Era. Samkhya and yoga are both dualistic systems that separate spirit, purusha, and matter, prakriti. Liberation is achieved when a person is freed from the cycle of death and rebirth by the realization that their spirit is pure consciousness and therefore not tethered to the material world of Prakriti. In Samkhya, it is achieved through the process of rational inquiry into the nature of matter. While in yoga, the same result is reached through deep meditation. Patanjali's yoga is referred to in some ancient texts as Samkhya with Ishvara. Ishvara meaning Lord or God, but not a specific God. Patanjali tells us that Ishvara is the most direct path to enlightenment, but he gives some alternative paths in case God is too much to fathom. So Patanjali comes along in this time where samkhya is prevalent, and he codifies the practices of yoga. Let's pick back up with my interview with Austin here for some further context.
0: At this point, we do have many other schools forming of Indian philosophy, like some kaya yoga, some kaya yoga, which is a highly dualistic system, which believes that nature and this consciousness are are the supreme being is not on the same loka. Well, they share a lot, but obviously one becomes a system that many people can use. And the other is a school of philosophy like Plato or or Socrates. It's it's an academic school of thought where people are getting together and they're sitting around having intellectual discussions about these ideas. But for Patanjali, you still have to have the discourse with the teacher because the sutra is so cryptic You're not going to just read three words and understand the meaning. So it's got to unfold and it's got to uncrumple and be shown to you. However, it is obvious that the discourse is less important than the actual action of working toward a state of meditation and a state where there are no fluctuations of the mind where one can then union with this thing that he calls Ishvara or the Lord. But he doesn't tell us what that is. He, he really leaves it up to the person. And so it's, it's also that with him is a very modern approach where he's able to say, I'm not going to give you the specific name of a deity because we know that they existed by this time. He just says, you have to dedicate your life to the Lord. And I'm gonna let you figure out what the Lord is.
1: Oh Lord, let me figure you out.
0: I mean, Patanjali is very influenced by some Kaya yoga and by the teachings of the Upanishads, And in this case, he really does try to break it down and put it into a system that's a manual. That's like, I'm gonna give you these steps to perform. And if you perform them, and if you kind of put it all together accurately, then you're gonna get this thing called yoga. And it's as simple as you have these fluctuations, please stop them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Step one. <laughs> you have these fluctuations, could you stop it, please? And then we'll move on. You know, it's actually, <laughs> his system is actually incredibly difficult. That's the problem with him. And Patanjali's more interested in your mind when you really sit down and read. Everything that he says and reads somebody who's who really has a grasp upon interpreting these sutras, which are, are sometimes very cryptic. You realize that he's almost like Sigmund Freud or modern psychoanalyst therapy. You know, he's he's dealing with the mind on a level that is really impressive, but he's also assuming that everybody has the capability of controlling their mind. And at this point, it's interesting because every yoga teacher training that's out there, even the simplest 200 hour one is studies Patanjali. But by the time the British occupied India, Patanjali was almost forgotten. Nobody was practicing Patanjali's yoga. The text was only known by a few scholars, and it really was Krishnamacharya and Iyengar and Patabi Joyce who really refueled the interest of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. So see, that's why you can't really detach from talking about these modern schools because things like that happen too. It's like a a text is almost forgotten about and then somebody finds it or picks it up and goes, wow, this is great, let's bring it back. Let's start talking about this again. Then you're back in your modern timeline where this is why we're so affected by Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Did
1: you know that the Yoga Sutras were practically forgotten? from about the 12th century to the 18th century. It was a Muslim invasion of India in the 12th century that had a significant impact on Hinduism. The invaders brought a new religion, Islam, and it challenged the traditional beliefs of Hinduism. They also brought new customs and traditions, and that also influenced Hinduism. The Muslim invaders destroyed many Hindu temples, and then... Some of the Hindus converted to Islam to avoid persecution and some others went underground to practice their faith. And so the Muslim invasion had this huge impact and the Yoga Sutras disappeared during this time. And so this transmission of knowledge from one generation to the next was disrupted. And it wasn't until the British colonization of India and the 1700s and 1800s that started this reemergence of some of the sacred text as the british used the text to try to understand and control the population so it was under this regime that the yoga sutras were rediscovered translated into english and then shared in the west And concurrent with all of this, Eastern mysticism was becoming popularized in the West by a Russian born woman named Madame Blavatsky and a spiritual movement that she created called Theosophy. Now, Blavatsky was a chain smoking mix of innovator and grifter, and she piggybacked Theosophy on an interest in spiritualism, which was popular in the US at the time. Think of Houdini and seances. Beatrice, wife of Arthur, if you hear us from beyond the veil of death, knock three times and let yourself be known. There were some other things going on at this time the scientific method was becoming more and more trusted and popular, and that was poking holes in the faith of the Christian world. And so people were looking for answers, and theosophy was a cultural lubricant for the Eastern philosophies to come to the West. In 1893, a Hindu monk and philosopher named Swami Vivekananda traveled to the United States to attend the Parliament of World Religions in Chicago. And it was there that he introduced teachings of yoga to Western audiences, emphasizing the physical and spiritual benefits of the practice. And although his spiritual practice was Vedantic, he saw how the Yoga Sutras were popular in the West and went about creating his own commentary, which ended up in his book titled Raja Yoga. Because he was from India and not entirely familiar with the Yoga Sutras, remember they had disappeared, (laughs) and so they weren't part of the Indian mainstream religious tradition at this point. So he was not entirely familiar with them, but he knew that they were popular in the West, so he wrote a commentary, and his commentary went a little astray of the traditional commentaries, He added later developments like the chakras and nadis into the mix. Nonetheless, it became a foundational commentary for the development of yoga in the West. And one of Vivekananda's goals was to establish Eastern philosophy in the West. So in that, he was successful. The other Indian who can be credited with bringing Yoga Sutras back from obscurity is Krishnamacharya. Now you may know Krishnamacharya is widely credited with developing the modern physical practices of yoga. He was trained in traditional yoga practices, studied ancient texts like the Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita, and then he synthesized this knowledge into a system of yoga that emphasized physical postures, breathing exercises, and which he believed could promote health and well-being. Krishnamacharya mixed the ancient physical practices of yoga with Indian wrestling and British gymnastics and put it all together to develop the foundation of yoga asana practice as we know it today. Like Vivekananda, he borrowed from Western traditions to infuse and to popularize the Eastern ones. His students include many of yoga's most renowned and influential teachers in the West – there was Indra Devi, a female teacher who taught yoga to Hollywood stars in the 50s. K. Pattabhi Joyce, the founder of Ashtanga Yoga. B.K.S. Iyengar, founder of Iyengar Yoga. And Krishna Krishnamacharya's own son, T.K.V. Desikachar. So to summarize, the Yoga Sutras were nearly lost after the Muslims invaded India in the 12th century. Then they were rediscovered by British colonizers in the 18th century who translated them in English, brought them to Western audiences. And since then, there's been a kind of a back-and-forth dialogue between India and the West, with spiritual ideas being passed back and forth. The funny thing (laughs) is that the Yoga Sutras were originally written for forest ascetics in the first millennium, Not for householders or people who live busy lives enmeshed in the material world. For people like us, Tantra and Karma and Bhakti Yoga probably make more sense. Yet, the Yoga Sutras are at the heart of most of our teacher trainings.
0: I had a discussion with a friend of mine who leads a yoga teacher training that's more Bhakti-based, And she was like, yeah, we teach it. I don't know why we teach it. I said, well, you're teaching Yoga Sutras. Number one, the Sanskrit is a lot easier than the Bhagavad Gita. I mean, the Bhagavad Gita is hard. I mean, the Sanskrit is difficult. You can get somebody to to repeat five Sanskrit words strung together. Whereas when you're dealing with the Bhagavad Gita to even start to chant it, you have to kind of learn the melody first. Because if you don't learn the melodies, there's only like three or four traditional melodies you know, if you can learn those melodies, then you're gonna get the rhythm of the rhyming couplet correct and you'll be able to chant it. But I I didn't learn the melodies until maybe five, six years ago. I thought you just made it up as you went along. That's how (laughs) you know I was taught like, oh yeah, just we'll just sing it. And it's like, well, it doesn't really work that way, does it?
1: All right, yoga teachers. Let's refresh your knowledge of the Yoga Sutras. Austin is going to talk about the Gunas and the Kaleishas. There's three Gunas. They make up everything that exists in the material world. In yoga, the material world includes our mind and our thoughts, everything but pure consciousness. The closest translation we have for Guna is strand or quality. The three Gunas are Sattva, Rajas, and Tamas. Sattva is the Guna of Balance, Harmony, Goodness, Purity, Creativity, Positivity, Peacefulness, and Virtue. Rajas is the Guna of Passion, Activity, Self-Centeredness, Egoism, Individualization, Movement, and Dynamism. And Thomas is the Guna of Imbalance, Disorder, Chaos, Anxiety, Impurity, Destruction, Delusion, Negativity, Dullness, inactivity, apathy, inertia, lethargy, violence, viciousness, and ignorance. As yogis, our goal, at least according to the Yoga Sutras, (laughs) is to make the mind more sattvic so that it can see our true nature and return us to pure consciousness. Next up, we have the kleshas, of which there are five. Klesha translates to poison, and these are the mental states that cause suffering and keep us from yoga. The five kleshas are avidya, which is ignorance, ashmita, ego, raga, attachment, dvesha, aversion, and abhinivesha, clinging to life. The kleshas pull us into tamasic mental states and away from the sattvic ones. And for Patanjali, all gunas, even sattva, are to eventually be transcended. We want to transcend this world of materialism and all that is in it.
0: He feels that these things called the gunas are keeping you from understanding your true nature, your jasic, your tamasic, and your sattvic. And he believes that you're born naturally with these things called kleshas, which are probably a key to understanding how to even perform a yama or a niyama, is first you gotta understand that you're ignorant of who you really are and you're full of your own ego and you're attached to your own pleasure and you're full of hatred and you're fearful of death. And that's what he deals with kind of in the first part of the second chapter is he's like, until you can understand that these blocks or these kleshas that are keeping you from yoga, that they are the fluctuations of the mind. And the idea of pranayama and meditation and concentration helps you send them back to the source of the klesha. That's how he phrases it. It's like it will be sent back to its source.
1: Next up, Austin's going to talk a little about the yamas. Ahimsa, satcha, astaya, brahmacharya, apadigraha, yama. The yamas are ahimsa, non-harming, satya, truthfulness, astaya, non-stealing, brahmacharya, sexual continence, and aparigraha, non-grasping.
0: Once you perform all these, once you understand these kleshas are in place, then you start practicing yamas, these restrictions, non-violation, It also you hear people interpret it as non-harming, non-violence, all are good, all are the same. You hear being truthful, not stealing, practicing brahmacharya, and that that's an interesting one, like when he says brahmacharya, he's He's speaking of sexual continence. People have a hard time with that, Yama. It confuses them. But you have to remember in, in his time, you know, just a regular school teacher would have been called a charya, And a student would have been a brahmacharya. So a student being a brahmacharya is meaning they're focusing their attention on learning, not on, you know, hooking up. We don't really understand that that's what kind of would have happened. You wouldn't have gone to co-ed learning at this point. It would have been like, you know, the boys would have been over here, the girls would have been over there, and you wouldn't have been thinking about sex at that time. So the idea of restricting sex would have been important to him only because it helps you take note of what you're doing and focus more and not have an external, um, distraction happening, which is a fluctuation of the mind. And then finally, you know, not gripping, you know, don't grip, allow things to be fluid. So he gives you these like really kind of austere, hard things to try to accomplish within the first Yamas.
1: All right, listeners, are you ready for austerity? Have you achieved familiarity or do you need some more clarity? <laughs> Well, much of what we encounter in the Yoga Sutras is useful and gives us ways to understand the world and to understand our own minds. But at its core, it's an instruction manual for ascetics and forest dwellers. If your goal is to teach group yoga classes or to spend time with your friends and family, it's not really written for you. And that's okay. Let's look at these yamas for instance. Patanjali and the early commentators are very clear. Ahimsa means non-harming, and it includes strict vegetarianism. No exceptions. And brahmacharya means no sex. No exceptions. It all has to do with stilling the fluctuations of the mind. Yogash citta vritti narodaha Rotting flesh is tamasic. One cannot eat it and create a sattvic state of mind in meditation, according to Patanjali. The same with sex. It brings us into our bodies. It creates desires. Patanjali wants us to transcend the body. If we want to eat meat and have sex, then Patanjali's yoga is not for us. In the West, we try to find elaborate loopholes by changing the meaning of these words and of Patanjali's instructions. But instead, we should practice satya and honor the true meanings of the words. There's other systems of yoga that are not as austere, and if you want to eat meat and have sex, then just be honest. Don't say you're practicing Patanjali's yamas, because you're not. Patanjali doesn't have much to say about asana, other than to make it steady and easeful. But for most yoga teachers in the West, asana is, what, 90% of what we teach? I would guess that most of us don't believe in the magic powers described in the third chapter of the sutras. And most of us enjoy being out in nature, we enjoy our smartphones and cars and modern technologies. Giving it all up is a romantic idea, but then how are you going to listen to podcasts? What to do? For an answer, let us turn to another of the sacred texts that most modern Western yogis are aware of, the Bhagavad Gita. That is a discussion between God in human form as Krishna and Prince Arjuna. In the third chapter, third sloka, Krishna says to Arjuna In this world, since time immemorial, I have created a twofold path, O sinless one. The yoga of knowledge, for contemplative individuals, and the yoga of action, for yogis. In Hinduism and in Buddhism, you will often hear the term householder. It means one who participates in the material world, goes to work, has children, and yet still can lead a spiritual life. For the householder, the path of asceticism is not practical. For those of us living in this world, the paths of karma yoga, pakti yoga, and tantra are more accessible. And indeed, if we view the yoga of the West, that is what we see. The ascetics are not posting asana photos on Instagram or taking hot yoga classes at the hip studio in town.
0: The big conflict between Indian society and yoga is, is it the renunciates practice or is it the householder's practice? Who is it? So like some of them say detach and others say get involved. Thing is about all of these schools of yoga, we have to remember that the the end goal is always the same. Nobody has a separate goal. It's how you get there and what you do to get there that makes these different schools uh, unique. And once I get there, am I one in the same as this higher consciousness? Do I merge with it completely and in totality? Or am I going to be in its presence on its loka and having union with it, but not be it? Those are other different schools of thought that are much more complicated um, because they do get into some religious dogma we're starting to then kind of dabble with what happens in the afterlife. You know, what happens to the soul after we leave the body.
1: Right. Well, we don't want to get into that. No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But the end result is that every one of these forms Whether it's the Vedic period, which is like, I'm going to perform the ritual, I'm going to chant these chants, there's going to be all this smoke, and it's going to be ecstatic, and there's going to be flames, and I'm supposed to have this religious experience setting here, right? And the same is true with the Upanishad teachings. In the end, I'm supposed to understand the reason for being in the body and what the journey is to obtain liberation while I'm in the body. Then you have Patanjali coming along. He says, well, I'm just going to give you a system. I'm just going to give you a bunch of directions on how to do it. And then Krishna does the same thing. I'm going to give you some directions, but I'm doing this as your friend. I'm doing this. It's much more personal than Patanjali. Patanjali was a little impersonal about all this. I'm going to try to make it personal. I'm going to try to get into the dirt with you to do this. They all lead to this idea of deep meditation and and union with this idea of higher consciousness, God, Ishvara, Krishna, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, call it whatever you want to call it. But they're all telling you that the end result is the same.
1: All right, that's it for Patanjali. I hope that sheds some light. The Yoga Sutras are important and have relevance, but we should understand their historical context. At the end of each episode, I do like to ask my guests if they have any advice for new yoga teachers. Since the discussion Austin and I had covered many schools of yoga, his answer references the notion that we should, as much as possible, be aware of the various schools and what separates them. I hope... That The two episodes that I did make with Austin will help clarify some of that and just know that his answer is in that context.
0: And then as a young teacher, I think you have the capability of when you are talking to students, if you understand these different systems, you can talk to people on different levels. You know, you're not dogmatic. You're not a fanatic. You're able to kind of like say to somebody, if somebody says to you, well, "I really, really like Buddhism, I really am attracted to Buddhism, I would really like to know more about that." You can say, "Well, I'm not the person to really be talking to, but my friend over here is a wonderful Buddhist teacher. Please go see them. You know, Because they're seeking something that maybe you don't offer. So we should be supportive as yoga teachers. We're not in the business of conversion. We're in the business of helping people, pointing people in the right direction. That's all we're in in business of.
1: Well, now I'm in the business of wrapping up this episode. Austin, along with his partner, Bobby, are the owners of Urban Sadhu Yoga in Jersey City, New Jersey. They offer online and in-person yoga classes, workshops, and teacher trainings, check them out at urbansadhuyoga.com sadhu is spelled s-a-d-h-u Oh. thanks for listening to the Don't Forget Yoga Podcast your time and attention is deeply appreciated very deeply if you like the show please tell your yoga teacher friends about it or leave us a review if you have a yoga mnemonic to share or anything else you want to talk about, I'd love to hear from you. Leave a voicemail at don'tforgetyoga.com right now during this guitar solo. Our listeners are the best. Woo! Until next time. Refrain from being someone else's pain or disdain. Or disdain. Keep your third eye on, on the, the game. game. Each your line's main. Line. Train your brain until yoga... Easily remains. No, In other words, Don't forget, no, don't forget. Don't forget, forget it. Mnemonics.